Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Bear. How did we get into this current mess surrounding free speech? Ian Haney Lopez of the University of California at Berkeley's School of Law explains it going back to the 60s, the rise of dog whistle politics and where we can find some hope for a better future. I'm very pleased to be sitting here with Ian Haney Lopez, who is a professor of public law, actually the Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at the University of California at Berkeley. We're actually sitting here looking at San Francisco and the Bay, right by the water in a beautiful spot in the Bay Area. You're also the director of the Racial Politics Project and the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. I would love to start a conversation and sort of see as a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, which has been in the nation's spotlight in relation to speech issues. Your work and the book I know is A Dark Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. And you've written other books about the legal construction of racial identity and been very committed to equality and the law's capacity to advance a project of equality that we've been struggling with or trying to implement in this country for, let's say, at least 70 years. If you look back at your last year and a half as a year professor of law in the law school at Berkeley, so not in, maybe in the sort of cauldron of the undergraduate turmoil, but the university has certainly been the spotlight of what I think is not just a conversation about speech, and it's about other you know, political and philosophical and legal issues. Can you say a little bit how you've maybe experienced the last year and a half and what, what you think has been at stake in these kinds of um, big debates? The question of speech for me, for the major institutions in our society, is much more than a question about competing ideas. It really is a question about the future of democracy. And I say that because I think that we have to step back and, and take a larger perspective on what's been happening in Western democracies over the last 30 or 40 years in the post-colonial era. We are rapidly changing societies, and we're changing in a way that goes directly to people's sense of membership in society and their sense of shared membership across group lines. And that has created the possibility that different and powerful forces in society can exploit notions of division and can use that through democratic means to gain and wield power. And at the same time, I think the major social institutions in Western democracy have failed to respond to efforts to drive increasing levels of social division have failed to promote a message of cross-group and specifically cross-racial understanding, cross-racial solidarity. And I think what's happened at Berkeley over the last year and a half in terms of speech is a microcosm of that larger dynamic, an effort by important figures on the right to intentionally exploit speech as a way of driving social division 
um, an unwillingness on the part of the university to speak forcefully for the values of social inclusion, and at the same time, a connection between these dynamics and what was happening politically in the country as a whole, and I would say, what was happening in terms of the politics of Western Europe. When you say that there's a larger movement or some forces in existing democracies of anti or non-democratic forces, and then you said some institutions haven't really responded adequately to sort of advance an agenda of democratic inclusion or equality. So those institutions include the university. Of the course. university would be one where of actually course. we can test some of these ideas. We are, and I always think we're supposed to implement a slightly better version of society. I don't think the university is supposed to be the low-grade version, actually, where it's even more nonsense. Actually, it's supposed right. to be the one where we're experimenting right. how to set up a social compact, a community that is truly committed to the inclusion of members on equal terms. Yeah, so I guess what's happening so far is that I've kind of laid things out through a series of abstractions. Let's try and ground this conversation, yeah. because I think it'll be easier to understand what's happening. If we think about democracy, the two big challenges to democracy are to create a sense of social solidarity and to push power and wealth downward and outward to the broadest possible extent. And of course, opposed to that, are those who wield the greatest amount of power or control the greatest amount of wealth, who actually seek means of consolidating that wealth, protecting it, accumulating more, and often those means are through forces of social division, to limit the sense of social solidarity, to create groups that are privileged and groups that are exploited. Mm -hmm. That's the dynamic we've been in as a society for millennia, but it's certainly the dynamic that we've been in in the United States since the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement was the moment when the Democratic Party, with um, sort of uh, su support from significant numbers of Republicans, um, wanted to expand the idea that the role of government was actually to provide routes of upward mobility for the vast majority of Americans, wanted to expand that idea across the color line. So they're no longer applied almost exclusively to whites, but applied to African-Americans in particular, but also to Puerto Ricans, to Mexican-Americans in the Southwest. But the very moment in which there was an effort to expand this radical project of devolving power and wealth downward to the majority of Americans, to expand the notion of Americans to include people of color, that created an opportunity for forces within our society, partly self-interested politicians, but subsequently the forces of concentrated wealth, the, the, the corporations, the family dynasties, to begin to promote a message of racial division geared towards getting people to turn against the idea of social solidarity and against the idea that government has a role to play in creating a just and prosperous, a sort of a shared prosperity and as well a role to play in ameliorating racial injustice and promoting racial integration. So if we stay with the first part, that you said the government could play a role to actually expand, let's say, what in America we would call opportunities, like economic opportunities, employment opportunities, educational, housing, etc. So the civil rights movement is advancing an agenda where actually our laws are being transformed to sort of expand these rights that are given to only some people to all Americans, right? So in some ways, yes. first, it's an affirmative kind of we're expanding the rights that other people had for a long time, and we're bringing in to the fold people who had been excluded. 
So the law works here in some ways, the Civil Rights Push, Civil Rights Act 1965, sort of is a push to make the law work on behalf of everyone. And I think that's right, but I think that well, we should be clear. So if you think about the 1964 Civil Rights Act right. in particular, right. you can see that as, as merely negative in the sense of prohibiting discrimination in right. the economy, prohibiting the discrimination on the part of employers and the 1968 in terms of housing. I think 1965, you start talking about the Voting Rights Act, that starts to have this affirmative come in, exercise power. Uh, but I'm actually thinking more generally, not just the Civil Rights Acts, but Lyndon Johnson in 1964 campaigns for president saying he's going to have a war on poverty and that that war on poverty is going to extend to all Americans. And in fact, his campaign commercial from that year announcing his, his war on poverty um, shows the pictures of 11 impoverished children. Eight of them are white, but three of them are African-American. And Johnson's message is clear that the New Deal and Great Society programs that we had been pursuing will now be pursued even more aggressively. He's promising to end poverty by the bicentennial, by 1976, as a sort of a suitable marker of what it means for the United States to turn 200 years old. And he's going to reach across the color line to include African Americans and Latinos as people who should be recognized as fully American. That's the sense in which it's really inclusive and positive. It's not just about ending discrimination. Right. It's about saying these people, irrespective of all of these people, all of us, white, black, and brown, are deserving objects of affection, that we are all in this together, that society responds to all of us, that government needs to respond to all of us. And what are you saying, Walter? This is a political and moral position, Absolutely. not just a legal stance. So the courts will work in certain ways, as you're saying, they will you know, outlaw or implement certain things depending on whether it's affirmative or prohibitive. But this is a political position to say we are thinking of everybody as deserving. And this, this still could be framed, though, in a very kind of optimistic, positive, affirmative American way, say expanding opportunities would benefit all, all boats would be lifted, etc. right? So when you're saying including these opportunities, before we get to this backlash of that, mm -hmm. what it is, sort of at this moment, and this is kind of important because Berkeley goes through its own iterations of sort of this kind of expansion of including people. Before the backlash, is there a sense that Americans are embracing this, this political message? Yes, though, though I want to be clear, it's, it's, it's political, it's cultural, it's, it's very importantly cultural. This is, this is the work of the civil rights movement to show that segregation is a terrible moral wrong to change the cultural sense mm -hmm. of who we are and who belongs. It, it has a very strong moral component. And it's also, but it's not universal in the sense of applying the same way to all people irrespective of the social position they occupy. There's an element of particularism to it. There's an element of saying, we want to make sure all people are included in the context of a society which is founded and operated in terms of hundreds of years of racial hierarchy and in which people are differentially located in society. And what is that going to require? Mm -hmm. And that's going to require affirmative efforts at inclusion, sustained investments in communities that have long been systematically denied support for government or systematically exploited with the help of government, right? So I'm picking up in particular on the phrase, um, a rising tide lifts all boats. Right. 
that's the wrong metaphor mm-hmm. because that's a metaphor that implicitly assumes that boats are on more or less surface. equally they're on the same surface. Looking, right. they're on the same surface <laughs> we're right. looking at the, uh, the yeah. sea here. They're yeah, all yeah. Be but, but exactly you know, if you have a well-found boat and somebody else has a canoe that has you know has had holes ripped right. in it, right. the rising tide's not going to flow people equally, right? So you need yes. to pay attention to where communities are. So there's no level playing field to say that actually it's just recognition of the, of social people located differently in... in yeah, so Johnson is rightfully famous not only for this notion of war on poverty, but also for promoting the metaphor of a race, where he says, that, he says American society is a foot race, but you cannot justly take somebody who's been advantaged by 300 years right. and put them at the starting line with somebody who's been shackled for 300 years and say, now the shackles are off. Right. Compete, right? right? And this is Johnson's metaphor. This is what he's telling the American people. So he's saying that is not the right metaphor to say, well, the starting line, let's go. He said people have already been advantaged for generations. Right. Or disadvantaged, held back. Exactly. 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 Or again, to to get a sense of like how, how profound a cultural and political and moral moment this is, if you think about the Kerner Commission report, it comes out in 1968 mm-hmm. that's seeking to explain the devastating riots that have been marching across the United States, primarily in black areas, black cities. The Kerner Commission says, yeah, there's all this hardship in black communities, but the ultimate explanation for the hardship and the anger and the violence is on the white side of the color line. We need to focus on what white society has done to create a crisis in the African-American community. Right? And so there is this... And this re- report has what kind of impact? Sort of some- the report is released and it's published by the New York Times kind of on this lark. Here's this report. It turns out to be a national bestseller. It has a tremendous impact in terms of the imagination of a broad segment of society that says we want to turn the corner on racism But we also have come to appreciate that racism is not just interpersonal prejudice, that racism is something that we've, that we've structured our society to reflect and to enforce, uh, and, and that tremendous social effort is going to be required in order to dismantle the legacy of racism and to really move towards a society in which people, irrespective of their race, or I would say by now religion, or gender or national origin, because all of these are, you know, these sort of profound and important social movements are coming together by 68, where everybody, irrespective of these established status hierarchies, has full membership in society and is regarded as the appropriate objects of state efforts to spread power and wealth downward and outward. Can I go back to one point you said that the recognition is here that Partly the recognition is that racism isn't just interpersonal prejudice and treating people badly because of their race. And so there's a recognition that some other things are needed or there are sort of more what we would call structural or systemic things right. are at work. Right. But this is an important realization in some ways to say racism is not just being bigoted toward an individual, but other things are also problems that have to be solved. Absolutely, right. absolutely. And, and so this is really a change that occurs more or less from the early 50s to the late 1960s. And it, so, so in the early 50s, with, with the civil rights movement, people had a sense that, that racism was structural, but they also had a sense that the rhetoric of the day called for um, 
um, a more limited analysis of racism, which promised relatively easy amelioration, right? A sort of a, okay, so racism is really interpersonal prejudice, and how are we gonna solve that? We're gonna have little kids go to school together and they're gonna get to know each other and that's gonna eliminate prejudice, right? And so that was kind of the, the, the framing, I think, within, certainly among black intellectuals. I mean, if you think about somebody like W.B. Du Bois, Du Bois understood 50 years earlier right. this was not interpersonal. It was deeply so color line or right? something else. Right, 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 right. Not people being not nice to you. Yeah, <laughs> but what's happening is the notion that racial hierarchy is not natural, but it is instead a reflection of social practices mm -hmm. and is deeply immoral. Mm -hmm. That's a notion that really only gains hold culturally among racial elites in the wake of World War II, as people think about what happened with Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1950s, people begin to apply that frame to African-Americans and say, this is not about race relations, which was the important phrase of the day, as if you just have groups that are differently located by nature, you have right. to think about the relations. People are now starting to use a new word, literally a new word in the American vocabulary, racism. Now, to understand what that word meant, I think that you had a movement, certainly within law, to say, well, racism is a form of interpersonal prejudice. And, you know, so Gordon Allport becomes a, sort of a proponent of this in, in, in his psychological work, and then that's incorporated into the, into the Brown decision. Right. By the late 1960s, you've had a dozen or more years of um, um, legal declarations that Jim Crow is over and you have levels of segregation that have changed not at all. And so now you have this greater awareness that says, it's not enough for us to demand integration. It's not enough for us to demand formal neutrality in terms of the laws. We actually need society to make affirmative efforts to break down racial barriers and to promote right. integration. Right, so it's not just prohibiting somebody from discriminating directly in employment or housing or transportation or something or accommodation, but saying we need to fix another issue that isn't just an interpersonal right. Right. one-off kind of. Or... And I think it's also a realization that, so I think the really important shift is from the negative to the positive. Fighting racism isn't just about stopping some bad people. Fighting racism is about a cultural shift, a moral shift, a political shift. It's really about transfer of, of resources, creation of opportunities. It's about recognizing that race has been a, a mechanism of wealth extraction, of group exploitation, not just in the sort of distant, well, this was slavery sense, but in the sense that um, racism in the South and across the country as a whole created the conditions in which whole groups of people were easily exploited, foreclosed from certain neighborhoods, foreclosed from certain jobs. This was a process of facilitating uh, wealth extraction and then rationalizing the resultant poverty and human misery. And if that's what racism was, then we needed more than just a legal regime that said, hey, bad people don't discriminate. Right. We actually need a politics that says, how are we gonna build wealth for all of these people? How are we gonna build wealth for the poor? Where racism has been one of the main ways in which the poor have been constituted in our country and in which disdain for the poor has been sustained. Right, so, 
What happens then in the late 60s to 70s? Does something happen in the both political and legal thinking to sort of say from just restricting, let's say, bad behavior, which sort of goes out of fashion and then becomes legally kind of not permitted anymore to what steps can be taken then legally where the court starts thinking differently? Say, how do we deal with this other more structural issue? A, a tectonic shift, an earthquake happens. And I think it really happens. It's easiest to measure it in terms of the presidential elections in 1964 and 1968. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson is saying, we're going to eradicate poverty within a dozen years. And we're going to do that in a way that extends our society's concerns across the color line. We're mm -hmm. all Americans. And Lyndon Johnson wins in a landslide. He wins the votes of two-thirds of Americans. But he does so at a point in which most whites, who comprised about 90% of all voters at the time, conceived of state efforts to eliminate poverty as primarily helping people like themselves. Four years later, Richard Nixon is running on a campaign, he calls it the Southern Strategy, but it's essentially a campaign to use coded references to race to appeal to racial resentment on the part of white voters. It's misnamed the Southern strategy. Surely it comes out of the South. And so, for example, it, Richard Nixon promises to slow down the appointment of activist judges, which is code for we're going to curtail the effort of federal judges to enforce desegregation on Southern, uh, Southern school districts. But Nixon also comes out forcefully against what he calls forced busing. And forced busing was the northern analog of states' rights in opposition to school integration. Nixon also begins to talk about law and order. He begins to talk about the silent majority. We know that he was purposefully going after racially fearful votes. The special assistant John Ehrlichman would later be recorded as saying, um, Nixon's appeal was always to the white bigot that was always foremost in our minds. Nixon himself, watching one of his campaign commercials on law and order, said, that's it, it's all about law and order and those damn Negroes and Puerto Ricans. This was a purposeful effort to appeal to racial fear, though it was done in racially coded language. And coded meaning it's sort of not openly recognizable, supposedly, but at the same time you're saying it's an open secret, or the code is every American understands it. Right so, it's, so it's code in the sense that on the surface the language activist judges, states' rights, forced busing, law and order, silent majority. On the surface, these are phrases that do not directly refer to race. But they're all phrases that allow what we might term plausible deniability. They allow the politician to say, no, I'm not referencing race. Mm -hmm. And then there's a further move. They allow the politician to turn around and say, but you know who is referencing race? The people who just accused me of making a racial appeal, they're the real racists. I'm taking the high road. Because I'm neutral and they're pointing out and they're identifying people by race. They're the they... first person in the room to say the word race. Okay. I just said law and order, right. welfare cheats, gangbangers, illegal aliens, terrorists, silent majority, heartland, Inner real city. Americans, <laughs> right? All of these words. And, and people, in fact, one, one, one of the worst offenders right now is the candidate for governor in Georgia, I think Crowley, I can't remember his first name. He just tweeted out that he's sick and tired of people on the left always talking about race. And yet his entire campaign strategy is to talk about race as much as possible. 
in this coded language which allows him to pretend that he's not actually talking about race. So, so what you're saying is that in the so in '68 there's a kind of recognition on the one hand that larger forces are at work. Things are not resolved by just fixing race relations on the ground between two individuals. And then there's at the same time a kind of backlash for people saying we actually don't we want to actually keep the status quo in a way and not fix these things. Yes. Yes, but I want to I want to be very cautious about the word backlash. Mm -hmm. There is very much a backlash if by that we mean something like an organic grassroots resentment of these profound changes that are happening. Absolutely. Many whites feel themselves threatened by these changes. They're threatened culturally in the sense that they're moving from a position of being assured of their cultural superiority um, to now being told that they are equal with these groups that they long regarded as inferior. They're threatened also by changes to their material position, right? The, the, the best schools, the best jobs, the best neighborhoods had long been reserved for whites. And now the message is we as a society are no longer going to draw those, those racial lines to protect whites. But I want to be as absolutely clear as I can that the story is not one primarily of backlash or organic resentment. The story is overwhelmingly how government responds to that backlash. And here I want to fault both the liberals and then the conservatives. The liberals were in a position to see that moving toward racial equality would actually be costly for whites. They were in a position to react by saying, to the extent that the move towards racial equality for African Americans comes at a cost to whites, and in particular to working class whites, we should make sure that we dramatically increase the size of the pie for all working people so that whites feel that they're gaining through a move towards racial equality rather than losing. Mm -hmm. But instead, the Democrats didn't do that. The Democrats ended up in a position in which they said there are relatively few funds for the poor. And now we're going to stage a competition about who will get these relatively few funds. Right? So that right there accentuated the idea among many whites that benefits to African Americans, that the change in social stature of African Americans was at their expense rather than to their benefit. But even more, what happens on the right is they recognize this grassroots resentment and they decide that it's a way to win elections. They decide that it's a way to break the New Deal coalition that had been returning Democrats to power almost without interruption for, for 20 years. The New Deal coalition was uh, white liberals, working class whites, and African Americans. Mm -hmm. And on the right, the Republican Party decides that they can use, that they can exploit racial resentment to break that coalition, to divide the white working class from African Americans and from liberal elites both, and that that's going to be their route to return to power, and indeed their route to a generational shift in terms of political power. So this is what Richard Nixon attempts in 1968. He barely wins election. But the results of the election make it clear that this strategy of appealing to racial fear works. 
and it becomes something that he aggressively pursues essentially from 1970 on. And in 1972, Richard Nixon wins in a landslide. Right? And so you have this incredible reversal between 64, mm -hmm. when Johnson and his commitment to a sort of a war on poverty that includes people of, of every color, wins a landslide. And then eight years later, you get a landslide going in the other direction for a politician who's promising to roll back civil rights, who's promising to roll back the war on poverty, and who's promising to restore the position of whites through subliminal messages of caring for the silent majority. So perhaps an obvious question. It's restoring working class whites to a sense of superiority, but it is not giving them actually economic opportunities. So Nixon is interesting. So Nixon is, was a moderate Republican. He was moderate in terms of race relations. He was moderate in terms of public policy. So prior to the shift, Nixon was thinking about things like a guaranteed universal income. So Nixon's a moderate. It's just that he recognizes it strategically. Appealing to race is going to be the way to break the New Deal coalition and to win votes, and it works. The person who really harnesses this dog whistle politics to class warfare is Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan got his start in politics as a spokesperson for Barry Goldwater, who's one of the sort of last of the old diehard opponents of the New Deal. Ronald Reagan, you know, funded by GE and, you know, going around the country and really adopts a businessman's perspective. It's Ronald Reagan who comes to see that he can use a racial story to turn people against the idea that government should be helping people and to convince a majority of whites that they should trust their fate to the marketplace. So Ronald Reagan begins to tell a story that says, hey, all these government programs that help people, they actually help undeserving minorities. That's the very idea of a welfare queen. So it's the idea of handouts. And it's the so idea of handouts. So you're paying for these people who are not working. Right. So in some ways, your tax dollars are supporting dependency, and they're not sort of... That's exactly right. That's exactly the connection. And if your tax dollars are supporting dependency, what should you do? Cut taxes. And so Reagan enacts one of the largest tax cuts in the history of the country, a dwarfed recently by the Trump tax cuts, but these are tax cuts that go to the billionaires and to the corporations, the very rich, not working people. And then also Reagan says, if you're supporting programs that don't work because they're just helping undeserving people, cut those programs. And so this is when we start cutting back, not just on welfare programs, but on all sorts of public investments in, in for example, in education, in infrastructure, in healthcare, Right? And then Reagan's also saying, if you can't trust government because government's coddling minorities, then let's get government out of the way of who you can really trust, the big businesses. And he begins to talk about deregulation. Right. Though we understand that deregulation is really re-regulation. It's allowing corporations to write their own rules. Right? And so what you have is a racial narrative that says to people, resent people of color. They're undeserving. They're dangerous. But hate government because government coddles them through welfare, government refuses to control them through lax criminal enforcement or by refusing to control the border. Turn your back on government. Trust the wealthy. Cut taxes, cut social programs, allow corporations to write their own rules. So the, the policies that have driven mm -hmm. this incredible transfer of wealth from the middle class to the upper 1%, the upper one-tenth of 1% over the last 40 years, they've principally been sold to the American public through a racial narrative. 
that's the key to, to, to Donald Trump. That's the key that connects surging racial division and surging wealth inequality. But you're putting your finger on something you're saying as a 40-year-old narrative that is actually where I think we've lived now through about two years of people trying to analyze the Trump victory and saying, oh, you know, he promised them jobs, it was economic, and then somehow in the last four months people have said, oh, maybe there's another factor in there. Maybe race and racism is a real factor in this. And in yeah. some ways, it's been a kind of slow awakening for some people, I think. There's been a kind of post-mortem of the election. I think for the people who were paying attention, the political insiders, they knew all along it was race. It was very clearly race. But what happened with the Democrats is they convinced themselves as early as 1970 that they could not directly name race as a problem. They said to themselves, what's going to happen to us if we say the Republicans are running a series of candidates who are racist in their appeals, and by implication, that the people who are supporting them are themselves racist? They said to themselves, Democrats said to themselves, that's suicide. Let's ignore race. Let's hope it blows over. Let's not talk about it. Let's focus on economics. Now that runs up until about 1990. It's a losing strategy. So then Bill Clinton comes along and he says, we can't ignore race, but we can't name the racism on the right. What can we do? Let's imitate it. Right, so he starts the dog whistle. He starts the dog whistle on the Democratic side. that have been haunting the Clintons for 30 years or so. They're, they're purposeful. Bill yeah. Clinton runs an ad and he says, I and Al Gore, we're a new sort of Democrat, right? So two Southern white men, he says, we're a new sort of Democrat. We are going to end welfare as a way of life. Well, whose way of life was it, supposedly? He says, we are going to crack down on crime. Well, who are the criminals? He says, we are going to slash the federal budget because now government's the enemy. All three of the themes that Clinton identified to, to say what it was that made him a new Democrat, those were the old Republican race-baiting themes of the previous 20 years. Do you think they were just, let's say they chose this strategy because they felt they couldn't win otherwise? So they adapt and they mimic sort of the other side which in some ways is where we are in the country right now. Are we supposed to just mimic the others? Right. Is there a counter-narrative? Right. When you put your finger on it, it's, I mean, it's totally fascinating to say actually that racism is a new invention that a certain type of speaking about race is also yeah, a political it's, it's invention coded, of 50 dog years. Whistle, yes. And that this serves a purpose. Would there have been another way? I mean, so, could the Democrats have done something else and actually maybe brought it out into the open? Or It's not clear whether they could have done something else as early as 1970 because many whites really did have a powerful cultural and material stake in defending whiteness. But 50 years of dog whistling has changed the relationship of whites to the material benefits of being white, of asserting whiteness, or at least has changed the possibility that we might be able to convince people that whiteness is not in the material interests of whites. Again, perhaps right. too abstract. Here's what <laughs> I mean. Here's what I mean. The rich, the corporations, the family dynasties, the right have been exploiting white racial resentment to win popular support for policies that have 
overwhelmingly been good for the very rich and that have been hugely destructive for most working class whites. So when working class whites think about what their life looks like now, unions are busted, good jobs are gone, families have to have two people working, pensions are gone, healthcare is incredibly expensive, there's an enormous opioid crisis. Education is incredibly expensive. Right, education which we used to support is now unaffordable. All of these changes. Now the right is telling people, telling the white working class, these changes reflect the fact that we're doing too much for people of color, that our country's changing demographically. But in fact, there's another narrative that's possible, that's always been possible, but that's possible and it seems like it's really working now. It's in a narrative that says this, the rich are using racism as a divide and distract weapon against all of us. If we come together, white, black, and brown, across color lines, together we can retake government and through government, we can both address racial injustice and create a broad and shared prosperity. And so this is mm-hmm. this basic narrative. Notice what the narrative does. It moves from a discussion of racism in which race is primarily about whites being pitted against non-whites mm-hmm. to a discussion that, that fuses race and class by saying racism is primarily a weapon by the rich against all the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And that move, plus one more, an explicit call for racial solidarity. Not just, so this isn't just a message that's negative. This isn't just a message of this is what they're doing to us. Because that, it turns out, doesn't, people feel like there's a lot of negativity out there. They want something positive to aspire to. So it's a message that says, this is what they're doing. Let us come together across lines of race, and together we can solve this. We can get our government back. We can drive money out of politics. We can build a shared prosperity. We can address mass incarceration and mass deportation. Now, I, I say all of this works, and I, it, with actually some confidence. I was just actually thinking, Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah. No, no, because Obama didn't name this. So I'm going to ask you a question here. It's actually, did Barack Obama, did he get to this place to no. name this last No, but, let me, but let, me, let me get to that in a second. So I have evidence, right? So, so I'm saying, listen, there's this race-class narrative. It's a race-class narrative that says racial solidarity and through racial solidarity government and through government economic prosperity for all of us and racial justice. Mm-hmm. We've been working for the last year through this race-class narrative project with a linguist, Anant Shankar Osorio, with a prominent think tank, Demos and Demos Action and Heather McGee, with one of the leading Democratic pollsters, uh, Celinda Lake, and together we actually went out and tested this message. And we, over the last year, gathered evidence that nationally, across the country, and we focused also on California and Indiana and Minnesota, that this message of cross-racial solidarity not only outperforms messages of racial fear, the sort of dog whistle messages, it also outperforms the democratic preference for colorblind economic populism. The sort of message that says, we're not gonna talk about race, but let's just talk about fight for 15 and free public education. So you think America may be ready now to actually, for the Democrats to bring up the issue of I think we're ready, and I think we're ready for two reasons. One of the reasons I've already mentioned, which is, 
listen, you know, after 50 years of this, whites are really in a position where they can see that people voting their racial fear have been really bad for society, for themselves, for their families. The other reason, and I think this is really important, is we need to be clear that the cultural change impelled by the civil rights movement has kept going. There have been tremendous reversals in terms of civil rights law, equal protection, the courts. We can talk about that. Set that aside. The cultural change in the sense of convincing people that racism is a great moral evil and that we should recognize the humanity of people across race lines, that has kept going. There's been a lot of progress on that ground. And in fact, we can understand the election of Barack Obama in that context. Not a majority of whites, but a solid plurality, possibly, possibly a majority of whites, have really come to internalize the message that we are all truly human, irrespective of our color, and to embrace that as a value that they want to act in accordance with, right? So these two changes, the fact that whiteness now or that white racial resentment is actually terribly harmful to the majority of whites, plus a sense among many whites that they really do believe in racial equality and that white identity is not a source of value in terms of their self-conception. Those two are amazing changes over the not one positive, one negative, but, but significant changes over the last 50 years. I think what you're identifying also is why this strange phenomenon of these campus controversies over speech is because the younger generation is what you're saying. They have internalized certain things 50 years into it. They've also grown a bit impatient when certain things are not happening and they're saying, really, we've integrated schools 50 years ago. We're the third generation of kids in these universities and we're still not being treated as if we belong. So right. I think there's a kind of impatience. Right. There's maybe a challenge to bring them to the polls now to get them to register Absolutely. to vote and vote because we do Absolutely. know there's a kind of the generational difference in who's voting and who's not voting. But what you're saying, there is a readiness in America to listen to this new to this narrative. Absolutely. Put racism on the table as a, as a factor. Absolutely. And that sort of buying into your whiteness actually does not help you. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I want to be very careful here. We need to put racism on the table in a particular way. Mm -hmm. It does not work to put to put racism on the table in terms of a white over non-white hierarchy. Mm -hmm. That creates a sense of resentment and resistance among whites. Yeah, it's guilt, shame, defensiveness. Yeah. It doesn't, hasn't worked very well. <laughs> but, but, and this is, but, but let me add this, and this is a really important point. Look, we've got a lot, especially in college, you've got a lot of highly educated people of color. You've got these sort of racial justice activists. You, in, in fact, um, you've got many whites who are racial justice activists who are quite comfortable with an analysis of white racial oppression. That is not where most members of communities of color are. Outside of these relatively elite spaces, when we go and talk to people in communities of color, African-American communities, Latino communities, East African immigrant communities, Asian American communities, and we lead with a message of white racial oppression, that message is demobilizing. People feel so overwhelmed by a 300-year history of racial hierarchy that they very quickly move to, they make two moves. One is they say, I don't see how this is going to change. And then the second move, and this is sort of 
pop psychology. This is how I understand it. I'm not sure if this is exactly what's happening. But the second move that you see is people very quickly shift to a language of individual responsibility. They say things like, yeah, they might have put a, a liquor store in every corner, but I don't have to walk in that door. Mm -hmm. right? and, and my sense is what's happening is people, when they feel that society is structured in a way that, that, that they're, it's really hopeless, they default back to, I can only control what I can, I, what I can control, and that's me. Whereas when we go into communities of color and we say to communities of color, you know, racism is a problem because it's being, it's being used by the rich against all of us. And through cross-racial solidarity with whites, blacks, and browns, mm -hmm. we can turn this around. And, and the answer to money power is people power. Mm -hmm. We actually get a very positive response. Mm -hmm. People say things like, we actually had a, an African-American focus group where, where, where somebody said, there's 16 of us African-Americans in this room. If we think something's a problem, nothing's going to change. But if we had eight African-Americans in this room and eight whites in this room and we agreed to work together, we'd be the majority. Nobody could stop us. We could change everything. Right? And so this message of the problem of racism is that it's a weapon of the rich wielded against all of us resonates not just with whites but with communities of color too. Right? And, so, and, 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 yeah. and that's, the, that's the move. Whites increasingly understand themselves to be a race. They are thinking of themselves in racial terms. Do we want them to think of themselves as a privileged race? Or do we want them to think of themselves as another group that has a racial identity but that is also at risk of being manipulated by the people with real power in our society, the corporations, the family dynasties? So there is some hopefulness actually that you're saying when what you're doing this work you're doing right now it's both the the research and the kind of working in communities that actually there's a there's a story that could resonate the working um, title for my next book is darkest before the dawn and, and and there is a there is a genuine hopefulness here not that this is foreordained in fact it would be a tremendous amount of work right but 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 here's what's at stake and this will get us back to free speech and these larger dynamics and and western europe can we as a society that, as a democracy that has been a Heron Volk democracy, a democracy limited by race to whites, can we transition to a truly multiracial society? Can we, for the first time in the history of the world, transition from a society in which there has been a dominant superior race, politically, culturally, economically dominant, numerically dominant, can we transition from that society to a society in which there is no majority race, but there is actual racial equality politically, culturally, economically? That's the challenge we're confronting. And I think that there's a hopefulness that yes, this is possible, but it's possible only so long as we see that race has always been a class weapon. Mm -hmm. And that, mm -hmm. that, so what we need is a sense mm -hmm. among people of color that we've got to fight racism because that's what's important to our communities, but it's also how we, how we get access to government. But in order to do that, we need white allies. Mm -hmm. And we need a sense among the white community, and this would be truly radical, we need a sense among a strong plurality, maybe even a majority of whites, that the fate of their children depends on them fighting racism in the white community. That's, that's really something powerful. we've never had as a society. That whites would believe 
our, my children will be, will be better off if racism is defeated. And what you just said is really interesting. It, it race or racism has been weaponized to actually damage and hurt whites, whites sort of in this kind of economic change. The overwhelming majority of whites have been hurt by white racism. What do you see the country right now in terms of where we are with, uh, you know, our daily debates about so so know, let's so, so let's co so let's come back so let's come <laughs> back. What does this mean in terms of the major social institutions? And I, and I think universities, public and private. Yeah. I think government. I think foundations. I think churches, unions, the major societal institutions need to recognize that divide and conquer has been a principal weapon of the rich in our societies. The most powerful elements of our society are trying to shatter our sense of social solidarity. And that means liberal institutions need to get off the sideline. Because liberal institutions for the last 50 years have been convinced that, that, that being liberal and, uh, requires being neutral requires sort of lay, letting this, this sort of competition of ideas, this marketplace of ideas, play out. And that somehow liberal institutions need to largely stay silent about major political, ideological, moral, and cultural debates. No. The major liberal institutions in our society need to step off the sideline and need to commit themselves to the idea of social solidarity, to promote that idea um, thoughtfully, purposefully, over the long term as a central part of their mission. Let me ask you a hard question about this. Did liberal institutions stay on the sidelines because they felt either that the truth will win out, the arc of history is bent toward progress and justice, it'll just automatically work that way, the American promise will be realized, or was there a subtle way we are benefiting in some ways for staying on the sidelines? I think the major liberal institutions have been run by whites who are relatively elite. And they've been run by whites who are relatively elite who have consciously or unconsciously themselves felt threatened by a radical racial analysis. But as you would say in your analysis, they have bought into a narrative that they're benefiting from something which in reality is hurting them. That's right. So in some ways That's they're right. just participating in a narrative because they think it protects them or That's it right. gives them a benefit. That's but in right. reality what you're saying, and if you're extending this metaphor of generations, that these institutions, including universities, which are staying on the sidelines, they may not last actually because they will also not benefit. That's right. If they stay out of this and adopt and stay in this narrative, that, and that, what, so when you're saying universities should step out, let's say universities or other institutions, public institutions, should should participate, you're also saying they've already been become politicized. They're already fully in it. There is, no neutral, position. Yeah. There is no, it, no neutral position. There is no neutral position, right? So, so by, by stepping back, they've actually created the space and thus have supported a politics of division and fear and resentment, hmm. right? And, and so, and, and, and I want to come back to this. I, I, you know, I, 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 I want to be clear, you know, in, in some ways, especially university, you get this sort of genuine commitment to a principle of neutrality or objectivity or, or a sort of, um, you know, a, a liberal position in which ideas should be given the room to compete and, and that, and that um, um, the best ideas will win out, right? So, so it's, it's not just, it's, it's not 
completely cynical or self-serving or even self-conscious, but I think there is a sense in which many whites felt deeply challenged by the civil rights revolution, by the demand for equality, by the demand that structures change and that opportunities and resources be distributed in a way that no longer track the color line. And I think their response was to say, okay, we're gonna back off, we're not gonna address these issues. The most we'll do is give relatively tepid support to ethnic studies programs and to limited affirmative action programs, though we want our affirmative action programs structured in a way that they primarily benefit relatively elite people of color. Right? I mean, right, this right, is right. what we've been doing as universities. As opposed to the universities watching what was happening politically and saying, we are standing by while democracy is destroyed. We are standing by while wealth is being transferred from society up into the stratosphere. We are standing by while a political party is coming into power that is actively opposed to the idea of higher education. We are standing by while a political party crafts its supporters, shapes them into believing that higher education is bad for them and their children. That's what we've been standing by for. Right? You see it here, you, you, you saw it on the Berkeley campus, you saw this sense of free speech requires us to allow these trolls to come on campus. Okay, we can quibble with that, but what I don't think we should quibble with is the idea that the university had a strong role to play in speaking out forcefully against division and in favor of social solidarity and coming together and the, and the, the importance of working together to create a multiracial democracy in which there's a shared prosperity, right? The university needs to speak forcefully to inclusion, to racial justice, to justice in terms of breaking down other status hierarchies, and also to wealth inequality. And if you brought up, you just brought up a minute ago, that universities maybe were satisfied to say, we have a few ethnic studies department, we do a little here and there. I think there's a lot of pressure from students, especially also to say, you don't just have to say it, you have to put your money where your mouth is. Absolutely. You have to actually put programs in, Absolutely. which the courts are, and conservative and liberals are trying to dismantle affirmative actions program across the country. Right. But I think you have to actually put resources in right. so people who are, have not had equal access right. to university education have the right to right. be here. And in right. some ways, I think this piece, it's not just to say you have a troll coming, you've got to speak out forcefully against his or her message, but you right. also have to have programs that actually counter that. Right. So I think what we need, here's the easy part, which will be a mountain in and of itself. We need to get liberal institutions to realize that the tactic by some of the most powerful elements of our society has been to sow racial discord, to, to break a sense of social solidarity, and that at risk is democracy. At risk is the welfare of millions upon millions of Americans reduced to poverty and no access to health care. Frankly, at risk is a sustainable environment a sustainable sort of global environment you know, that isn't destroyed, the risk of climate collapse, right? That that's being driven by this politics too. So we need liberal institutions, again, not just universities, churches, foundations, local governments, to say we have to promote a message of social solidarity. That's gonna be the relatively easy part because no message of social solidarity is going to succeed so long as there remain deep divisions in our society that can be exploited. 
So long as race remains a real center of difference in terms of access to positions of mm -hmm. privilege and power mm -hmm. or in terms of poverty, so long as gender remains that same axis of division or religion or nationality, then those axes of division will remain subject to exploitation by the next generation of demagogues. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough. If we want to save our democracy, if we want to save our planet, it's not enough to say, well, we're going to start promoting social solidarity by singing songs. Right. We actually need to promote social solidarity by building social solidarity in the actual structures of mm -hmm. our society. Mm -hmm. And that'll be the bigger challenge because I think you know, people do feel rightfully that they are benefiting from a societal structure in which large numbers of people are excluded because of their membership in disfavored groups. So there's the term white privilege. The term white privilege, I think, is, is a sort of a, a, a misnomer for most whites because what most whites are getting is actually crumbs. Right. Right. And so if we had a sense of white crumbs, like, yeah, there's some benefit, it but actually, it's really crumbs. It actually doesn't resonate that much because in some ways you're then supposed to think, I have this incredible privilege. Right. But if, but, and, and most and whites don't. become aware of it and all that. And in some ways, what I've seen in conversations across the university mostly, People get very resentful Absolutely. because they're supposed to check their privilege, as it's called, and they're thinking, I'm saddled with debt. Absolutely. I don't get a free ride here. Right. I don't get a fellowship. I'm paying right. a lot of money. It right. wasn't easy for me. I'm a first-generation student. You're misrecognizing me entirely. You're right. actually not even seeing what my class background right. is. Right. And so I would love a shift to the language of white crumbs because <laughs> I, I want a recognition that whites and people of color are differentially positioned in the university and in society, let's, we can't erase that. But I also want whites to recognize that there are some marginal benefits, but to hold on to those benefits means that they actually threaten the rest of society. They contribute to the immiseration of people of color and they contribute to the immiseration of their own family, right? So white right. privilege, no. White crumbs, yes, except when we're talking about, about white elites. Right. Because then privilege is real. Then there's, there it's is not power. Crumbs. It's, it's not crumbs. It's actually real privilege. It's, <laughs> it's very high salaries. It's yes. actual power. Yes. Right? And so how do we talk to the leadership in elite institutions that remain overwhelmingly white about them giving up real power? Right. Right? But again, it says it's the same dynamic. The solution, the counterweight to those with power and wealth lie in numbers. The more of us that say we demand this change, the more the leadership needs to go along with it or respond to it. And that may be one of the reasons why we are seeing a kind of political process where people are being trying to disenfranchise more and more people from voting. Because Absolutely. Because actually what you're saying, numbers means that more people will vote. And I think this conversation is right. another one about the demographic shifts in this country. Right, right, it's right. Thinking about disenfranchisement and gerrymandering, that's one of the ways in which the anti-democratic impulse of the right is crystallized. It becomes crystal clear. The right today is not much of a right in terms of actual conservatism, actual principled conservatism. It's mainly subservient to great concentrations of wealth. And what is the interest of great concentrations of wealth? Bamboozle as many people as they can and disenfranchise all the rest. 
that's their basic political strategy, and that's, that's Donald Trump. I mean, I love listening to you, actually, because it's been one of the few optimistic analyses. And saying there's, what do you think? there's darkness before darkness dawn. Darkness before the dawn. <laughs> darkness before the dawn. Yeah, it's really important. And as somebody maybe sitting in California looking out west, you know, I moved here when I was 20 to actually see it, to face, <laughs> to <laughs> to face the, the west. dawn. <laughs> no, I didn't want to. I felt, actually, this is a part of the country where there's some kind of optimism and there's mm -hmm. a kind of, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, as good or as bad as it gets. But there's something that needs to be recognized and your work has partly been that Trump has a real politics. And what you just gave me is an analysis that there's a real political strategy behind Absolutely. it. It's not just all a bunch of noise that he's no, sort of distracting us every morning on Twitter, but there's a real strategy here. Donald Trump in 2000 was considering running for president in the Reform Party. And the Reform candidate in that year was Patrick Buchanan. And Trump said of Buchanan, He's shameful. He's trying to divide us. Trump in 2000 understood the power of the politics of division. Now, Trump also ran for president in 2012 on the strength of his birther claims about Obama. And in six weeks, he rose to be the number one in the field of Republican candidates in 2012. This is absolutely a strategy on the part of Trump. He understands, and he has surrounded himself by people like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, who have decades of experience with Republican race baiting. He understands the power of race baiting. He understands that better than anybody else in the political party. And I think his, perhaps his greatest strength coming into the 2016 campaign is he did not think he could win. At least that he didn't think he could win the election. But he thought by running, it was a win-win situation. He was, at a minimum, going to raise his profile and dominate the field. And then, of course, there was the off chance that he might actually win the election. So he comes in understanding the power of racial provocation, mm -hmm. but not caring a damn about whether he actually won, and certainly not caring about the long-term viability of the Republican Party. And that allows him to be much more racially egregious in his dog whistling. Right. And that's, I was going that's to ask, his winning strategy. I was going to ask you about this like, dog whistle, which is this kind of coded language of appealing to racial resentment or uh, without really being open about it. He seems to skirt the line to actually, it's not just a dog whistle, he's, even he I can hear it. He skirts the line. Well, well, he skirts the line, but let's, let's make a distinction. The week before the election, a poll asked Americans, do you think the word racist describes Donald Trump? And only 5% of his supporters said yes. 87% said no. The number of Clinton supporters who said that word described Donald Trump was reversed, right? So we should be absolutely clear. Trump is still speaking in code, at least sufficient to animate his base with racial fears, but allow them to be convinced that Trump and they themselves are not racist. That's one thing. On the other hand, he has changed dog whistling. Trump's recognized that being accused of racism is one of the ways that many whites feel like they themselves are victimized by racism. Mm -hmm. So he actively encourages accusations of racism against him. And whenever anybody accuses him of racism, he turns around and says to his base, see, they think you're racist. Because he wants to engender a sense among his base that they are embattled as whites. 
And I not think, embattled right. as poor people, not embattled as working people, and I think he embattled has, as whites. And he has this intuition that he's connected this to this kind of anxiety about politically correct issues and taboo subjects, and he has this Perfect. great gift for exploding a taboo. So he says, I just said something, and then they call me racist. All I did yes. was say something. Yes. So it's actually this strange idea of an American who can speak his mind, and yes. I can be restricted, and I'm a little bit sloppy. I just can right. say whatever I want. Well, so, so political correctness functions, on the one hand, as courage. I'm willing to say things that others aren't. It functions also as a way of poking your thumb in the eye of the elites, now not economic elites, <laughs> cultural elites, but most importantly, political correctness has a deep, often unrecognized relationship to claims about truth. The fundamental claim behind political correctness is, I'm gonna name a truth that other people won't name, but it is a truth. So when he says things like, we need to talk about Muslim terrorists and the risk they pose to the United States, but Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama won't because they're politically correct. He's not just putting them down and he's not just being courageous. What he's saying is those dark-skinned people with a different culture and religion, they really are dangerous. And it's not racism to believe that. It's common sense, it's truth, it's fact. And they are actually, and then in some ways he's saying they are hiding the truth. That's right. Political correct means having a pose or a stance and you're not being authentic and right. truthful. In some ways, so he speaks on behalf of the truth all the time. Exactly. Saying everybody else is just politically correct. Exactly. And so, a, and it's so a we, difficult truth, but at least I'll say it. It's a foundational truth that I alone am willing to name. So we on the left look at Trump and we say, you know, for the love of God, the Washington Post has this catalog. He's up over 2,000 lies. I mean, he's a liar. He's a serial liar. But for his base, he's a foundational truth teller. Mm -hmm. And the lies, that's just, that's just detail. It's just noise. It's just exaggeration. They can forgive all of that because he's telling a truth that really resonates with them. And that truth is you're in danger from dark-skinned people from abroad who've infiltrated our country and brought with them a different religion, a different culture, a different mindset, a different way of being. You're I also think what you said earlier, the message to counter this has been one of has to be one of solidarity. Yes. Because you also cannot imagine a female candidate, Hillary Clinton, or an African American candidate saying to a bunch of white men, You're in danger. Right. That can only be I think Trump could Hillary Clinton couldn't have gone to Michigan or somewhere and said, right. You are in danger here. Um, they would have um, said a woman telling No, because it's race. So if you think about some of the biggest peddlers of this sort of a narrative. Laura Ingram and Ann Coulter. They are women who, I suspect it's an insignificant part of performance on their part. They're both very well educated. They're both thoughtful and smart people. But their public persona is dumbed down and angry, vitriolic about the threat posed by immigrants, especially right. by non-white immigrants, right. right? And then I think also their public persona performs a certain sort of femininity Right? And so they are professional women, and yet they don't really extol professional women. When they address gender, they talk about traditional gender relations. Right? So, but I do think hmm. white women can convey a message of threat, especially if it's a message of racial threat, to a certain extent if it's a message of gender threat too, if they're willing to say it's traditional gender relations that we need. Right, they're also probably appealing to another American tradition to say, I'm a blonde woman at right. risk. Right. Because of these black and brown people coming into right. the country. Furious, incredulous, outraged, right. 
right? And they the feelings emote and the very, very strong, very commonsensical kind of we right. as Americans all right. are basically in agreement that right. this, is, this is what we need to right. protect. And it's important to note, every so often throwing in the phrase, this has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. This is about people who will follow the laws, right? And, and that's perfect dog whistling. You deny that it's about race and then say this is about people who follow the laws. It's like, so what about the Trump administration? That's, that, that's a whole administration of lawbreakers. No, that's not what we mean by lawbreakers. We mean people who in their character are inherently illegal. And who would those be, right? right. So people who follow the laws, that has a very strong racial resonance but it's coupled with the claim that we're not going to talk about race. Right? That's the trick. That's the sort of dark magic of dog whistling. To inject race into the conversation at the very same time that you allow your followers to believe this isn't actually about race. This analysis of dog whistle politics is really interesting, I think, in this free speech debate that there people can come in and say things that everybody knows and understands. I think what a lot of people have exploited these kind of you know, trolls or circus acts have exploited a kind of legalistic principle of viewpoint neutrality and all yes. of that and say, as if we don't know what this means. The court, in some ways, as we all know, the court has recognized right. certain kinds of needs to regulate speech, but in some areas it says viewpoint neutrality, and then this is imported into academia, where I actually think it goes counter at everything that academia does, which is we right. distinguish between viewpoints all the time. Right. We actually don't have viewpoint neutrality. We must. Neutrality. We have to. The, the whole point right. is to be... Right. You're a professor of law, not because you have all sorts of opinions, but because they've been vetted and other people have judged them to be correct or right. valuable. Right. So in some ways, I think this idea of viewpoint neutrality has something to do with dark whistle, that some people can say things and you can look at them and say, this is not what it means. Right. It's not all. It's sort of, I'm just saying these things, but they don't have any racial overtones or undertones. It's actually, this, I'm just stating a bunch right. of facts. Right. And then I think what's interesting that students come in or faculty and say, Seriously, this message is enigmatic and lost on you. What this means? This is just basic. Basic. He's spouting some pseudo-scientific racist right. nonsense. Right. And I think that what's happened with academia is this sense of like, well, as long as there's a credible argument or sufficient ambiguity, we won't weigh in. And and this is where I actually think institutions need to weigh in. And so what has happened on the right is. When institutions do weigh in, they claim censorship. And I think we need a much more powerful rebuttal that says, censorship is when we won't allow you to speak. Censorship is when we say, you're trying to divide us and you're a malignant force in society and though we'll allow you to speak, we will also condemn you forcefully using our resources to promote our message. Right. And I think that's, that's where universities, I think, have really, I think if you, if you think about free speech, I think if universities went to students and said, we need to respect people's right to promote these messages, but we will use a megaphone to promote a counter message, and we will give you a platform, and we will promote your message, and we will weigh in and take sides and express our values, I think students would be much more relaxed. I think students would be like, Okay, I understand this. This makes sense. I think that's what students have also said. They said, you're giving the prestige of the platform and you're not doing much else. And right. they recognize these people come here, do a performance, and then leave again. And the right. circus moves on. And, it's, and they're saying, right. why aren't you using this platform to promote another? They should promote the story you just told me. Right. <laughs> it's, right. a, it's, a, it's very powerful. So right. I really am totally grateful that you've right. actually taken the time to explain this 
I do think I have to have you back on the podcast. I don't think I can, <laughs> I can strain our listeners to more than an hour. <laughs> you know, I don't know, but they're com- maybe if they're commuting in the Bay Area, they have a few hours. Stuck in, in traffic. Right? <laughs> and so, so I really want to thank you for joining me today to explain this kind of larger shift that's happened in our politics over the last 50 years. And it is a real threat to democracy in this kind of thoughtful way, but mostly for giving me an optimistic sense of what could be done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the great conversation. Okay. Thank you. And I'll invite you again at some point. Wonderful. Thanks so much.